All right, guys, welcome back to Surviving Hollywood. I'm Johnny Ray Diaz. I am Aaron Arnold. I am Austin Arnold. And we just sat down, well, not really sat down, but via Zoom, we uh, just talked to uh, actor, uh, spoken word artist, uh, author, uh, producer. This guy literally does it all multi-hyphenate, David Bianchi. Um, I actually met him on the set of Insatiable. We were playing these sort of Brazilian cartel guys. And uh, David is an awesome guy, man. He's, he's, he's worked on a lot of numerous TV shows like uh, Queen of the South. Uh, he's worked on MacGyver, Westworld. He did Birds of Prey with Margot Robbie. Um, this guy's got a great body of work. And on top of that, he's also just a, a great motivational speaker. And um, we had to bring him on the pod because – for one, I'm a you know have a lot of mutual respect and a lot of love for him and his work and his talent. And on top of that, you know, with the way things are going on in the world right now, between the protests, police brutality, the racism, you know, he has a lot of spoken word pieces that that address these issues. And uh, for me, it was I wanted to get his perspective on how things are right now and how they might affect Hollywood going forward. This was actually one of my favorite podcasts we've ever done. And it didn't involve a comedian or anything. It's just this guy was so cool to talk to and had tons of great perspective. And my favorite part was picking his brain on the Black Lives Matter and the civil rights and just everything he does with his art. One of my favorite pods yet. And for all you filmmakers out there, we did talk filmmaking at the end, how he got his film, his features to distribution. What are some of the key takeaways he's learned by making so many films? And at the very end, he shares with us his newest spoken word dropping tomorrow. You can check out his YouTube page by youtube.com slash his name. Um, dropping tomorrow the exact same day. And he shares with us the spoken word live on this podcast. Man, thank you, Johnny, for for thinking of me and uh, and asking me to 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 chat with you guys, with you fine gentlemen. Dude, yeah, happy man. to have you here. Yeah, man, I'm glad you uh, glad you want to come on, especially on such short notice, man. Uh, it's cool because uh, especially with like just you know the craziness of the world right now, everything that's happening, the unknown, the uncertainty of like even careers for us. Um, we kind of wanted just to have this conversation, and also just you know, there's a lot of things happening that are bigger than acting obviously. Sure. Um, so we kind of wanted to just chat with you about your perspectives and how you think it might have changed. Well, that's, the what I'm, and that's what I'm the yeah. most interested about. Cause this guy's, cause I saw your Instagram and YouTube channel and I thought a lot of great content. I was like, this guy's the guy to talk to. This guy has something wow. to say. Yeah. I, I, I have an opinion. We'll save it a bit for the chat, but I, look, I can go in any direction you guys want me to go in, you know, just fire questions at me. You don't have to fucking, you know, there's no pre-roll necessary here. Um, whatever avenues you guys want to go down, I'm happy to go down all those avenues. So um, fact, yeah. uh, I'm releasing um, in advance. I'll, I'll email you guys this afterwards, but I'm releasing a new, a really powerful new spoken word film tomorrow called I can't breathe. Um, and it's uh, it's it's guttural, it's, it's it's very guttural, but I don't come from a place of angry black man. I don't come from a place of angry minority. I come from a place of exhaustion. 
And so the tone of it, I think, is very welcoming in that everybody is expecting the person of color to just be constantly angry. And I think that there's a time and a space where we need to figure out how to communicate protests in the street, but we have to be able to communicate as individuals. Dude, I totally know what you're saying. Sometimes I find that if you if you approach it the wrong way, it's just people in general just, you know, get turned off and click to the next thing. But your recent video, um, have you ever been called the N-word? Mm-hmm. I watched the whole thing. I was like, wow, this is really powerful. I thought this Thank you, man. Yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. It was, uh, you know, um, you know, especially a lot of the, a lot, when I do leadership talking, I do a lot of leadership and empowerment talks. And, and one of the key components to that is obviously you have to have an act to be a speaker. You have to be engaging, but you know, that's kind of like, that's kind of sea level for the most part. And then above and beyond that, it's fundamentally about stories. And are you able to be vulnerable enough to create a me too moment with the people that are listening to you? to create a common ground and a place of empathy and create a pathos. And that's what we do as actors, we, as storytellers, when we perform a drama, we try to create a pathos and an empathy between us and the audience member. And hopefully that conveyed in that, in that video. Yeah. And I mean, just as far as this goes, like we see super conversational, man. So like one, one thing talking about the video that, that uh, you just dropped not too long ago, one of the things that kind of stuck out to me too is is talking about. Well, we should plug your... we should plug it real quick. Anybody yeah, yeah, can yeah. head head on over to his Instagram right now. Are we recording? Right. Are we recording right now? Is this happening? We're yeah, going. Why not? Yeah, we okay. keep it conversational, so we just started whenever. Sure. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. It's, it's on YouTube or Instagram, and it's basically called um, "Have You Ever Been Called the N Word?" I have, and it's pretty powerful. I recommend it. And so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and for anybody that's out there, if you want to plug the YouTube channel, I mean, that's, uh, and that's, and that's also a result of the quarantine, you know, it gave me the opportunity to sort of um, become re-embryonic with who I am creatively. And so I re-engineered and re-gutted my entire YouTube channel uh, in order to create, you know, a new, a, a new sort of side brand, David Bianchi, which is leadership and empowerment and sort of um, leaving an echo for growth for anybody that I come in contact with and reminding everybody that anything you need to be successful in this world is, is invariably inside you, not outside of you. And that, that echoes in everything that you do in this world, including the film industry. Um, but with all that being said, the YouTube channel is youtube.com backslash David Bianchi, Bianchi like the bicycle, all one word. And get inspired, get lit, you know. Um, obviously in this time right now, I'm, I'm speaking about the things that are affecting my heart. Um, because one thing that's interesting about YouTube is YouTube is, about, is, is, is more about the personality than it is about the content. People go to YouTube because they're looking to connect with the personality. And I, and I produce high concept spoken word films through that channel. So it's sort of like, you know, do two for them and one for me. Um, and, uh, and that's what I'm using the YouTube platform for is to be able to inspire, uh, motivate, uh, instigate and create um, a message of positivity um in, in the world you know one thing with that last when that last video that you dropped that i kind of found very i think what i was kind of connecting to is you talking about your childhood and did you grow up in new york is that where yeah, you grew upstate, up mostly upstate um, new york and upstate, upstate new york. york yeah mexico city upstate new york brazil but most, okay cool those stories are from upstate new york Okay. Uh, that surprised me because one of the stories was about your elementary school principal who basically, you know, called, called you the N-word in, uh, in one way or another. I was surprised that would happen in New York. I think of that as more progressive place. Well, keep in mind, I was, ra- I was living in Rochester, New York. So Rochester, New York is Western New York up by, up by Lake Ontario. Um, and so now, mind you, I guess he, I got to date myself a little bit, you know. So this was, you know, early 80s. Um, and let's not get it twisted, you know, and, and so the audience has a reference. If you haven't seen the video yet, um, it's called, have you ever been called a nigger? I have. Um, and so I, I, these feelings 
um, they, they, they are what we call resentments. And then the, the Latin word resentment comes from the root resentir, which means to refeel. And so the hard part about resentments is we're the only people that know that we're carrying them, right? And so they come back in waves. And so there are things that are emotional trauma, there's physical trauma, then there's, there's, there are things that are uh, post-traumatic stress disorders, also known as PTSD. These are things that are embedded into us all the way down to, some people argue, to a molecular level. And so that particular video was instigated by a resentment, a recent tear of what I felt when the civil rights movement started again, post the death of George Floyd. And it's just, and, and the anger and the frustration and the angst, it simmered in me and it reminded me of these moments because I wanted to be able to level the playing field for my Caucasian counterparts and for people that um, have not experienced this sort of degree of racism, where the anger comes from because one of the common narratives that I hear is that what the fuck y'all so mad about like it's you don't even know the guy that died but I wanted to let the audience know that this movement isn't just about police brutality it is about a culture of racism that exists not just in America but exists globally in any first world colonialized based nation on this planet if you are a person of color you have some way shape or form suffered racism in a way that has left you with an emotional physical or physiological trauma that has the potential to recent here or resent itself at any given moment in time, depending on what variables are presented to you at any given point in your day. And so what that does is it creates a sense of anxiety. It creates a sense of discomfort. It creates a sense of, of, of distrust and a, and a hyper sense of awareness, an acute sense of awareness, especially when we're in environments that aren't necessarily um, socially comfortable to us. So if I'm in Beverly Hills, you know, invariably these sorts of you know you call it racism are or people call it gaydar with, with with people that are you know same sex but not to be trivial about it or, or cavalier but the this this sort of radar goes off and it puts you at, not at ease it puts you at attention and so these are things that when they constantly repeat themselves and then george floyd is killed and then these these the civil rights movement kicks up again and the riots kick up bam you feel it and you recognize it and so um, I, I, I have learned that I think it's best to be honest with people to try to shed some light on where the human condition exists from. I like that you said that because I, I do think that's a common thing like from white people or whoever like, well, why are you so mad? It's not like this guy was part of your family or something. Like if a white person died, we wouldn't necessarily, you don't, you don't know, but we wouldn't necessarily, you know, feel that. But through your video, you kind of show on an emotional level, like, where that comes from what you just explained so I, I think that's i like what you just said yeah and and you know when you mentioned the story about my principal i remember like it was yesterday now the reason that that moment stands so vividly to me is because let me some backstory in third grade i moved to mexico city my father was transferred by kodak he was an executive for kodak so from third to third to to second to about eighth grade, I lived in Mexico City. That's where I learned to speak Spanish. So I speak Spanish natively. And, uh, you know, and me and Johnny worked on a show where, where I spoke Spanish and whatnot. C, C, yeah. So anyways, when I left for Mexico City, I never heard the word nigger. I never heard the word spick. I never heard the word wet back, chink, eggplant, mooly. I never heard any of that stuff because they didn't exist in the, in the Mexican lexicon. Now they have racism of their own. But then I came back to America in, when I was 13 and I was pushed into the public school system in eighth grade. And then I heard the word nigger and I understood and I was told what it meant. And then suddenly the bell rang in my head. I was like, holy shit. That's what my principal in second grade told me over his desk. Oh, interesting. And, and so when I came back, 
So you don't even uh, know. You don't even know. I, when didn't, I did not know until I was 13 years old what was being said to me because at the time I was, I was in second grade. I had no yeah. context of what nigger yeah. meant. No context. And it wasn't something that like, the kids would, because the kids will tease you if you say tits or say pussy, and then you go home to your dad. You're like, "Hey, dad, what's tits mean?" They all tease me, and then your dad tells you what tits means. But yeah, it's like you know, I don't, I didn't go, I didn't report to mom and dad about what nigger meant. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so, and so as a result of that, when I moved back to United States and I was forced to the public school system, I found out what these words meant. And then I came back and I, I went to a British school. So I spoke with an English accent because all my teachers were from London. And so it was very, it was a UK-based system. And then I came back to America with my public school teachings and all, all the resorts and all the places that I've been, all the places I visited. And it didn't, didn't occur to me that um, all the students in the public school system in America didn't take too kind of this brown little kid with all these stories of all these resorts and all these high-level places he had been. So they beat the shit out of me. Um, <laughs> I, so I, I, I discovered that I wasn't black enough. I wasn't Latino enough. I didn't understand hip hop culture quite yet. I didn't understand Puerto Rican culture, Dominican culture, because I was in New York, because there's no Mexicans over there. So when I spoke Spanish, hablaba como mexicano, like cantando, way, and all the Dominicans were like, hey, que tu estas hablando, man, porque tu hablas? You're in, the wrong, you're in the wrong part of the country. So it was guys like Johnny that whipped my ass. <laughs> 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 you know? And, um, and so as a result of that, um, I was expelled from six high schools. I never graduated from high school. And that was all related to insubordination and eventually getting beat up and then eventually beating people up. Um, and all of that, believe it or not, stemmed from cultural and race identity. Uh, I don't mean to dominate the questions, but um, can, I, can I ask you something about the N-word specifically? And I don't mean to sound ignorant because I want you to help educate me. Um, obviously, when somebody uses it in a derogatory context, you know, there's so much, if you know history, which most people know about American history, there's so much blood on that word. When yeah. somebody uses it in a derogatory context, obviously bad. What are your thoughts on the um, the black community, like changing the context of it and people using it like that? Cut off. Uh, yeah. what, what are your thoughts on like the black community using it in the, you know, how they change the context soft? Oh yeah. No. And, and look, and that's a, that's a loaded question. And, and let me um, preface this and that, you know, what I can offer you is simply my opinion and there's no, nowhere near the end all be all. And I don't think there is a real right or wrong answer. You know, um, I don't use the word in a negative. I don't use the word in my common language very often. The reason I'm using it now so trivial is as a result of the video that I released and I use it for a specific emotional purpose. Um, in, in, in inner cities and amongst black folks, we use that word and we use that word in, 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 our, in our internal communities. And it's obviously using rap music a lot um, because it's almost like if I had to describe it, you know, I'm, you know you're good friends with somebody when you pick up the phone and you're like, hey, you fucking cocksucker, dirtbag, lick a dick. You know, that's how you know that's your buddy, right? Because, and so you would never say those words to your uncle or your auntie or your grandmother or grandfather, but you'd say it to your, hey, buddy, suck my dick. Oh, you fucking asshole, you know, you know, <laughs> you know. So those are the things that you use. So if you can use that as a parallel in terms of how the word is used in the black community as a, as a word of sort of a, a camaraderie or endearment, um, even though it is an oxymoron onto itself, I think that's a, a parallel way to kind of describe the word. Now, with all that being said, there are black folks in the community that absolutely refuse to hear that word. And typically those are going to be, you know, men and women that are over the age of 45 and, and more culturally and socially aware because they understand the blood that's associated with that word. Now, if we look at the context of American history, 
and we look at where we are right now, which is 2020, the Civil Rights Act was signed in 1964, right? So let's do the mathematics on that. We're talking 36, 56 years ago, about 60 years ago. Dude, let's, would, let, let's give it more context. Over 200 years of slavery, slavery ended in the 1860s, 100 years of like the Jim Crow laws. And then just in the 1960s, you know, the same, it's, still, we, it's so recent. It's still, yeah, all it's so recent. recent. Yeah. So let's, so let's, so, so thank you for that. So let's just say 450 years of those 450 years, there's only been about 60 of which it was not legal to segregate, to beat, um, and, and, and otherwise demean a person of color specifically of the African-American race. And if you, were, uh, if, you were, if you were not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you sort of fell into some sort of subracial category. So if you look at that timeline, and if we look at where we are right now, our parents, for the most part, were alive when that act was signed. So we're talking two generations ago. So could we maybe make the argument that racism dies when the racists die? Um, and if that's to be true, um, we have a long we have a long way to go. We really, really do. Um, do you think I, that it really? Do you think that it really will ever die away, though? You know what I'm saying? Because it, I, I personally I, don't. And, and, I personally don't. In a lot of ways, I have like I have hope for this younger generation because they grew up differently than me and you. You know what I mean? They're they're exposed to more open ideas that I was not used to. I was a kid. They know, you know less I mean? of the context. To them, a lot of them just grow up and just hear it from rap music. And by the way, rap right. music, when we were growing up, was not necessarily in the mainstream. Now rap music is the, and hip hop is the most popular type of music. It is the mainstream. Right. So I think like, and you know, um, Takashi 6ix9ine uses it. Fat Joe uses it. A lot of people I mean, use it. I mean, every rapper uses it. Every, yeah. every rapper uses it in one way, shape, or form. And I think that you're right. And, 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 and John, I think you're absolutely right that what we, what we, emit into the world is what we consume in the household. So provided that we have a younger generation of people that don't understand um, the, the, the negative connotations associated with prejudice and racism, arguably we could say that those individuals will train their children in the same fashion and eventually racism will begin to sort of normalize to a point where it's not so fierce in our faces anymore. I don't believe it will ever die because there will always yeah. be some sort of um, prejudicial system against people of color and people of lower income statutes and so on and so forth. Um, unfortunately, where we are right now is that we have a lot of people that were raised in cultures and eras that were overt and open about racism. And so because of that, there is a lot of systematic hate. What we find now is that there is this, there is this fear associated with people of color that is programmed into us by the media, that is programmed into us by, uh, by, by the culture of, of the United States and also all first world nations. You know, and we could take this into a Hollywood conversation. So James Dean said something very interesting. He says, if you wanna understand a culture, look at their movie stars, right? So if you date back Hollywood, back to the early 1900s where the original founders of Hollywood were these independent filmmakers that stole Thomas Edison's technology and decided to go west and make their own fucking movies, right? They stopped in Sedona, so they got snowed out in Sedona. They kept going all the way to LA. Sedona was almost Hollywood. Moving on. This was during the dawn 
I should say almost the peak of vaudeville, of the dawn of vaudeville, which was followed up by the minstrel show. So the biggest theater movement in American history was the minstrel show. And then the minstrel show consisted of white players making fun and buffoonery of black people where white players would paint themselves in shoe polish and they would act out skits. So that was called the minstrel show. You could look it up. Now, if you look at movies going back to movies like the, the silence and even the talkies and movies like birth of a nation, for example, where you saw white actors that were painted in black face, that is a result of the grandfathering from the minstrel show from the vaudeville show. So now the reason I'm bringing this up, right, is because if you go back to the dawn of Hollywood, Hollywood trained the world on what the movie star was supposed to look like. Because at that time, Hollywood showed the world there was no other place to make movies except for Los Angeles, which is Hollywood. So we established what the movie star was supposed to look like, which is pale skin, tall, athletic, and Eurocentric. As a result of that, there has been a grandfathered programming going all the way back 100 years in the system that we all work in that says, if you are not Caucasian or Eurocentric, you are not star power. In other words, you are not the authority. You are not smart enough. You're not tall enough. You are not attractive enough. You do not dress well enough. And you certainly are not articulate enough to be seen in my TV or my film screens. Now, the problem with that is that the founding fathers of Hollywood were all Caucasian, so the, the writers and the producers were also grandfathered into that same system. And then they're writing content through their own contact lens, more grandfathering through that system. And then we also have to ask ourselves the same question, that as audience members, are we just as programmed as now the grandfathering has made us? So that when we look at people on screen, we say to ourselves, is that supposed to be a movie star? Because uh, since I've been a kid, movie stars have been white. So when I see a person of color that's on that screen to a, to a, to a, for a moment, I also get confused. Does it fit the profile? Yeah. In that, in that there's a big difference between the reality, which is there are hundreds of millions of Afro-Latinos all over the world. But the perception is that if you're going to be Latino on camera, you need to look like Antonio Banderas or you need to look like Sofia Vergara. That is the perception, but that's not the reality. The indigenous, the indigenous are not represented. The African-Americans, the, the olive skin or the darker skin Latinos are not represented. And that goes all the way back to the early days of Hollywood. And that also perpetuates itself in magazines, on billboards, on cologne ads, TV ads, car ads. Everywhere you go, you have the perpetuation that the Caucasian Eurocentric look is the look of God, is the look of the figure of power and of control. And that, unfortunately, is also part of the problem. Yeah, it's interesting you say that too, because I, even myself included, I've had issue with that before, where people are like, well, you're not dark enough to be Mexican. And it's like, well, and you're too tall too. You, you gotta be short, dark, then you could be playing Mexican. And it's like, you realize we come, we all come, we come in different shapes and sizes. Like, you know what I mean? So it's just, it's interesting how that even today is, uh, is still, is still is a big part of it. So how do you think, I mean, I mean, there's so much to talk about, but how do you think that, especially right now with, with the world, LA, I mean, everything just being sort of on fire. How do you think the industry responds to this? How do you think things might possibly change or, where do we go? You know, I mean, it's such a, it's such a big question, essentially. It's a big question. I it's know. A, it's, it's, a, it's a big question. And the thing is this, and, and I want to, you said the world's on fire. I also want to say this, that, you know, the truth is, and remind me to get to that question. We need fire. We need brimstone. We need breaking shit. We need looting. We need all levels of protest in order to make this thing work. What is supposed to work? Evoking of change. Right. So if you look at the history of the Amer uh, of the American books going all the way back to the Boston massacre, 
which was five locals were killed by the UK military. They were gunned down. That led to a protest, which led to a riot, which ultimately became the Tea Party, which ultimately became the Revolutionary War, right? So everything about America that is any good is fundamentally based on protest, it's fundamentally based on riot, and is based on, and is based on disorderly public conduct and uprising. So if you look at the civil rights movement, the, the women's lib movement, um, you know, all these things are necessary to get us to the point that we pay attention. If it weren't for the fucking fire and brimstone brothers, there would be no international conversation about what we're going through. Now, I don't condone violence. I'm not going to be the guy that's going to be, now, if I was 17 and 18 years old, I'd, been, I'd have been breaking some shit. No doubt. Um, I used to break shit for fun when I was a kid, you know? Um, but we need all elements of protest to make this thing work. Now, to the Hollywood question, Hollywood is going to proceed with caution because it is a white patriarchal hierarchy. They have to proceed with caution because they don't want to upset any side of the aisle too much because now there has been a certain amount of investment that has been given to people of color. That the people that people of color, as a result of early black exploitation films, going all the way back to like you know Melvin Van Peebles and Sweet Sweet's Badass Songs and those types of movies, that led to Hollywood saying, "Oh shit, we can make money off these niggas," you know. So that created a little bit of a segment. So Hollywood is going to proceed with caution. How they do that is, I think they're going to slowly become more and more inclusive more and more inclusive than they already have. And then I'm also, you're also gonna see that there's gonna be pushback, which you've seen, you know, John, especially you, where our Caucasian counterparts are gonna be like, well, what about white equality? Excuse me? Excuse me? It's almost a funny statement because that's coming from the mouths of people that don't have the opportunities, just because you've got white privilege, you're just not a good enough actor, you just don't work hard enough, you just didn't make it, so don't get pissed, you know? Um, it also comes from a place of fear that I am an up and coming actor or I'm a 15 year veteran actor and I haven't quite made it yet. And they're going to start giving away my white privileged opportunities to people of color. So now I'm starting to have a little bit of a fear of a black planet. I'm starting to have a little bit of a fear of a brown planet. I'm starting to have a little bit of a fear of no longer being the majority. And Hollywood really has to proceed with caution because the culture of Hollywood coming from the Me Too movement, now with the civil rights movement that we're currently in, also in the COVID era, um, this sort of new level of political correctness has created a very thin sheath of ice between cultures and what is right and what is wrong. And if the tipping point goes too far in one direction because you said the wrong thing, the court of public opinion will get you fired. Right. And so I think it's going to be uh, um, a, 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 a trial and error. But I also believe that because of this new political correctness, the racists are going to get kicked out the door. Mm. You're seeing people left and right getting fired across the board in all industries, the tech sector, Hollywood right. sector, business sector, financial sector, the government, all different degrees of government. They're getting fired because it's inherently in their nature just to be kind of bigotist. It's inherently in their nature. Like, you know, Donald Trump calls it locker room talk. Well, he's the president. He can get away with it. But some of this locker room talk will get a motherfucker fired, you know? And so these people are losing their positions. And so hopefully those will get filled with people that at least have some sort of a semblance of, 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 of cultural awareness. Um, and that even includes me. Because when I go into the hood, I'm like, I'm like, hey, I'm like, hey, my nigga was good, you know, but 
I have to be careful when I say that, because if I say that around my Caucasian counterparts, they, they look at me like I'm suspect, you know, because it makes them look it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And even, in, and, even within the, and even within the black community, there's all kinds of internal racism within the black community. Like, you know, for example, I've got a lot of black brothers that'll be like, man, why are you acting light skinned? You probably, probably heard Drake say something like that. Yeah, I hear that like one time. Light skin. So yeah. for all my, all my white people that don't understand what that means, you can raise your hand and say, I don't understand that. That's okay if you don't understand that. You know, when people say I'm acting light skin, that goes all the way back to the house field Negro complex, right? Because the light skin Negroes lived in the house. They polished spoons. They were able to over listen to the children being taught how to read and write. They oftentimes understood the Bible. They wore cleaner clothes and they weren't lashed on their backs because it devalued them. So the field Negro were the darker versions of the Negro who worked in the fields, who were smelly, not educated at all, told they couldn't read, they were beaten, they were lashed, they were chained, they were maimed, right? Because they were just workhorses. That's the house Negro, that's a dark skin complex. So in the African-American community, when black people say, man, why are you acting light skin? That's, that's a tongue in cheek way of saying, why are you acting uppity? Why are you being uppity? Don't be uppity, nigga. Like, it's just me. Don't act light-skinned. And then, then on the other side of that, the light-skinned people will be like, man, you just mad because you dark-skinned. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and like that's, and when, you, when I explain the history and what it all means, it's pretty fucking dark and complicated. Yeah. But the reality of it is, is that, again, going to Hollywood, who gets afforded more opportunities, opportunities are people of color. It ain't the dark-skinned brothers. Exactly. So like in brothers, of course, because we need to go all the way back to the Negro complex of being quote unquote passable. That's why, that's why it's like, you almost see like, especially now it's like this sort of mixed thing is so in, it feels like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's almost like, Oh, well, we're, we're getting more diverse, but you know, we're still picking light skinned people, but we're, it's diverse, but it's like half and half. So yeah. It's interesting yeah. how that whole, that whole thing is, has changed, you know? It is, it is. And for the first time, and I think, in, and I've been in Los Angeles now, this July will be 16 years. In the last three years is the only time in my 16 year history that it's actually been cool in casting to be ethnically ambiguous. Because I'll tell you, I was just recently talking to Carla Hool and, and she said openly, because she cast Narcos. Yeah, Craig. Great. And I'm a great fucking show and you were out there and you know the deal. You know, Carla said straight up, she's like, David, I love to cast Afro-Latinos. She's like, but I just don't give breakdowns for them. Why? Because the people that are writing the shows and producing the shows that she's creating are, Narcos is actually Brazilians, um, is created by Latinos or Brazilians from Eurocentric descent. So they're writing stories and character breakdowns for people that are basically perceived through their contact lens. They're not writing for Afro-Latinos because they don't see them in their periphery. Right. So if there's no breakdowns, Carla can't do anything for me. She said, David, I know you're a great actor. I know you, I, I, I can't, my hands are tied. It's too bad, man, because you'd be, you'd be great on that show. Seriously. Uh, I, think I appreciate that. I know you would. I know you, seriously, you would. <laughs> Thank you, man. Thank you. Uh, I hate to kind of backtrack a little bit because I know we've been, we, we're getting into it so much. And I know you guys feel free to jump in if you have a question, but, um, I kind of want to briefly just touch on the whole black lives movement sure. because, because there is a lot of, you know, misconceptions about, you know, who really runs it. Uh, what is it really about? So for, 
for audience or people that may not understand, what's the best way to educate them about what is this, what is this movement really about? Mm. Mm. Um, well, again, I have to let me just give you the disclaimer for the audience that I am not a member of Black Lives Matter. I'm not a member of their staff. I don't understand their bylaws. So there's a staff. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Black, Black Lives Matter, they have, they have, they're a nationwide organization with chapters in most major cities. Um, so what they have become, have become a, a, a symbol for the Black uprising and civil rights movement. And I think it's, it's, it's become, a, it's also unfortunately or fortunately become a branding thing. It's very easy to say Black Lives Matter. Right. And that was that was the name of their org is, and is the name of their organization. Um, if I had to take a stab at what this civil rights movement is trying to do, and what it stands for is it is trying to raise awareness to the higher levels of all communities. And when I say higher levels, I'm talking about the Caucasian elites, the decision makers, the trigger pullers that. There is a system that is in place going all the way back to the historical days of America that is fundamentally against people of color, specifically people that are African-American, going all the way back to slavery. And so for some people, this is about police brutality. For some people, this is about racism. For some people, uh, this is about uh, income disparity. For some people, this is about educational disparity. Um, for some people, this is about um, 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 black folks not being afforded the same opportunities, equal employment opportunities. These are all intrinsically tied into the systematic fundamental components of racism in America. It's a fact that people with the last name Clark get more attention. So if you have Gregory Clark will get more attention than Jermaine Walker in an interview setting. It is a fundamental fact that even from now, some people could say, well, you know, that's racist. Okay, maybe, but I think that some of these employers don't even realize they're doing it because the programming is so subconscious that that person that picked Gregory Clark over Jermaine Walker probably has black friends and plays ball with them and shoots hoops and hugs them and everything. Probably doesn't even hate black people, but he's just been so programmed he doesn't realize he's doing it. So I think that everybody in this movement is fighting for something. Now we're hearing this new thing called defund the police. Um, I, I have to argue that what they're talking about is taking some of the equity not all of the equity, because we need some sort of order in the country, right? But removing a lot of the funding that is otherwise given to police officers and distributing some of that wealth to be able to support suppressed and oppressed communities. And that's just not African-Americans, that's Latinos. Basically trying to, you know- It would, move, it would help white people too if we change the police, you know? Help sure, everybody. I mean, and move people out of ghetto life. And let's just be honest, ghetto life is in place as a result of slavery. That's why black people are broke. <laughs> black people are broke because they said, okay, nigga, you free now and not in 1864, but you got no skills. You can't read, you can't write. So you might as well just come back here and do what you've been doing for the last 20 years. That's all you know how to do, boy. Black Wall Street. Yeah. yeah, black Wall Street. Yeah. And I'm, and I'll, and okay, maybe I'll pay you a, a, a quarter a day, you know, if you're lucky. Um, so there are, and again, I'm not a, a social professor, this is just um, opinion, so I don't want anybody to just to start hammering away at me at Twitter, on Twitter or anything like that. But 
That's why we like you. You have opinions. All right. The movement is a, the movement is, I think, has a different meaning and a different fight log for every single person within it. What we're seeing different now is we're seeing a lot of you find folks. We're seeing a lot of Caucasian people, a lot of Latino, indigenous people. We are seeing a movement, the biggest civil rights movement in history as a result of a culmination of perfect elements. Social media, um, millennials that weren't necessarily raised with a racist heart or with racist educational programming. So they're willing to fight for humanity as opposed to just for people that are of color. Um, you also have COVID. <laughs> Corona created an yeah. environment where everybody was glued to their TVs. Everybody had a, everybody was home. They were restless. They were desperate and they couldn't help themselves and they had to let out. So there was already underlying current of fury with the governmental systems and the systems that are sort of marionette stringing our societies. And I think that um, the death of George Floyd was a tinderbox to instigate the movement. So all these things created a perfect storm. Is there a, is a reason that you didn't join Black Lives Matter, like officially? Because um, we don't even know exactly what that organization stands for. I think we're all in support of civil rights, but do we even, I mean, I, some people do, I just personally don't. Well, it's, it's Black Lives Matter fundamentally is for progress for people of color. Um, people of color need more, need fundamental equality um, at a social level that we have been fighting for for generations. Um, if I had to make a general statement, that's what I would say Black Lives Matter stands for now. What they're fight, whatever they're fighting for in the legislative level or whatever they're fighting for at the state level, they're also fighting to educate Black people as well. Because unfortunately, African-Americans, we, we, we suffer, they suffer, all, uh, many African-Americans suffer from an ignorant complex that they feel powerless as a result of believing that they can't have any power. So take Jesus Christ, for example. The only thing that black people seem to hold dear to when it comes to slavery is fucking religion. That's it. You know, you know black folks were, were convinced that Jesus was white. They just believed it. They just believed it because they were told that. And so is it far-fetched to believe that there have been, and there are millions of African-Americans and millions of Latinos and minorities in general that just believe what they're told just because they believe it, because that's what you're told? We as civilians, we just kind of believe what we're told. Um, and if we start to ask too many questions, we're called conspiracy theorists, right? We're called crazy or cuckoo. Um, so I think that as Black Lives Matter is really just fighting for awareness, education, uh, uplifting of the black community, um, and fighting for specific uh, fundamental equality levels for people of color. And, and, and why did I not or join the organization? Because the truth is, man, I can only worship so many gods. You know, you're doing your I, own thing. Maybe what you're doing is better than what they're doing. Yeah, you know? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's right, wrong, or indifferent, or better. Um, I definitely uh, will, am working to build some allegiances with some folks there. I do know a couple of folks that are involved in, the, in that particular movement very deeply. I once upon a time directed a feature-length documentary called Outspoken, and it was against the occupation of Iraq that I felt was uh, the illegal occupation of Iraq. And I interviewed a lot of families that lost soldiers. And, what year did you make that? Uh, this was... 
it released the year before Barack Obama became president. So it was the end of the Bush administration. Dude, so, you, were, you were early on the right side of history there. Now everybody you know, says, oh, what a, we're so foolish for going into Iraq, dude. You led that. Well, yeah, but I, I was fighting with conscientious objectors and I was fighting and I was in the streets protesting and I, and I abandoned my acting career for two and a half years to make that documentary. George As W. Bush is a war criminal, am I right? He is absolutely a war criminal and, and he should be treated as such. I mean, call, you know, Colin Powell. Um, now, what I found, and, and you guys are all actors, we're, we're highly sensitive people. And so we're very, um, we're conduits for the emotional component of the human condition. If I get too involved in one particular movement, I go head in because when my heart speaks, I have to react. I cannot let my heart be subdued. And I invite anybody out there that's listening to this, if you have a piece of you that you feel needs to speak, you owe it to yourself to speak because if not, you're gonna suppress yourself and you'll have a resentment against yourself go back to the resentment that you feel and all that. So I didn't join the movement because a part of me is a little too afraid to fall off the balance being of what I've been doing, you know, because I'm an actor and I'm a content creator. I'm a producer. Um, I'm no longer a, a staunch activist, but I can still be and, and send messages of activism through my art through spoken word films and through, you know, the stuff that I'm doing in YouTube um, to try to uh, raise awareness about what's happening right now. What do you think needs to happen for the protests to end? Like, is there, if we get police reform, do you think that'll be enough to like, oh, that's a step in the right direction or, per, I mean, nobody knows obviously, but because to me, it seems like it's getting, you know, now it's like all trans lives matter and like, you know, the Latino community, I see they're getting in there. And so it seems like, you know, what we were trying to avoid, the all lives matter, now it's just becoming so broad. It seems like to get something actually accomplished is getting harder. Well, um, I, listen, I, I don't know that they're ever going to stop. Oh, and, damn. And I hope that they don't. Because um, look, man, let's go again, going back down the historical timeline of America. Well, in the 60s, it stopped once they passed the... Um, you know, they got abolished the Jim Crow laws, whatever, the Civil Rights Act. Well, they kind of stopped, right? But they, they, there were still protests popping Just up. Sure, sure. Small, smaller scale, smaller scale well, than it was. What we're talking about now, we're talking about fucking volcanic civil eruption right now, right? This yeah. is like, this is unprecedented what we're experiencing right now. Um, and it's exciting to be a part of it. Like look at 92 with the Rodney King riots. I mean, so I think every 10 to 15, 20 years, there'll be a new uprising. And, and when you talk about the LGBTQ community, they were in this, they're in the fucking, they're in the apex of their own civil rights movement. They just are getting permissions to marry for crying out loud. So they have every reason to stand up and shake their fists. Sure, sure. I'm uh, not saying they don't. I was just saying, it seems like there's just, now there's like tons of different groups being part of the same protest. I was just wondering if you saw an end to the protest, but I liked your answer. Yeah, you know, we need I, to keep I fighting. Yeah, I don't, I don't, as long as there is oppression, there will always be room for protest. And like you said, very American to do so. It is very American to do so. It is also very American to militarize our police force and use violence to quell those protests under the illusion of free speech. You know, so all these things uh, are, are, are intrinsically connected. I hope that what is happening, and I know that it is happening, because if you look at like our, our the halls of, of, of Washington, you know, our, our senators are changing. The, 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 
the, the melanin is starting to set into to Washington. And so if you look at the television academy and the movie academy, it's like the more and more that we pepper these communities, these high decision maker communities with people of color, the more and more we can start to create a social space that is more and more a mirror of America. And the more and more that our the Caucasian counterparts and we as people of color start to see a more balanced view, that's where we'll start to settle a bit. I think the real uprising here was fundamentally that we got pissed. The world got pissed because you watched a man, judge, jury, and executioner, a man fundamentally squeeze a life out of another man on television for the world to see via social media. The uprising came from, it took nine fucking days, nine, to arrest all four. And what was it like? It was, it was, I think it was day three or day four, they arrested the murdering officer. In what world, in what planet can you kill someone and, and roam the streets for four days when they know where you live and they know you've done it? On what planet? Please tell me. So it's, it's that kind of shit, man. And they didn't convict uh, Eric Gardner, the cop who murdered him, and like previous cops in the last 10 years, even further, but even just in the past 10 years, you know, the U.S. doesn't really convict the cops that clear cases of murder. Absolutely, they absolutely don't. And men in blue have been above the law and, you know, body cameras, body cameras came as a result of social uprising. Right? Because remember, so many years ago, body cameras didn't exist. Now the technology wasn't there. But because of, of, of unfortunate events like Philando Castile and because of unfortunate events like Rodney King, once the technology was available, because of uprising, there became real conversations in the halls of justice that says we need to fucking make a change. So now body cameras are now on officers. That's a very important change and moving in the right direction. Now, if you look at, um, if you look at uh, Breonna Taylor, for example, her situation, they have now passed a law um, that is abolishing no-knock search warrant entries. So there are fundamental changes that are happening. Unfortunately, the media is going to sensationalize the violence. It's not going to sensationalize the things that are happening. So that's why we're having this conversation, because unfortunately, the media keeps you ignorant of these things. Which is right? crazy to me that they created a law in her name, yet they haven't arrested the people that were involved. And so like, it, why? It doesn't make any sense. And, and, and so the saga continues. Right. And so as long as there is injustice, there will be uprising. Um, and um, I don't think that anybody ever will always be happy. Um, but we're doing better than ever before. And I know that I owe it. And I think, Johnny, I think you owe it to your ancestors as well to use your voice and to speak to your community and try to raise awareness, hence this podcast. Um, because our ancestors had it a hell of a lot harder than we do, you know? And as a result of that, um, I don't feel like I have an excuse, you know? I, I've seen on social media that people say the best thing for a white person to do is acknowledge and listen. Like that's the easy thing every, that's what, that's what people of color, black people, that's what they want to see. Is that accurate? Like you're saying silence is compliance, so you better speak up. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's a, that's a smart, but I also think that's a very safe approach. Yeah, exactly, dude. I mean, anybody who posted a black square, I mean, to me, 
that's nothing dude like lead through actions that's what okay. i think yeah it's, it's good i think it's actually good to speak up and like you should show solidarity but beyond that you know lead through actions you can if you have power you can hire, hire somebody or whatever yeah i mean you can you know you can call your local leadership i mean it doesn't I would rather hear from somebody over coffee say, hey, you know, I, I sent an email to the district attorney regarding A, B, and C, rather than, oh, I posted a black square on my gram. You know, it doesn't take a lot. And you're not exposing yourself by sending an email to your local leadership. You're not exposing yourself um, by, you know, funding um, some inner city 501c3s. Um, you're really not. And I think that we will find audience out there that, you know, self-esteem comes from not acting your way into self-esteem. You gain self-esteem by achieving esteemable acts. So stacking your vertebrae into self-esteem is a result of your behavior set. So if you do things that are positive for the community, that are positive for the movement, you can do it in a way where you don't expose yourself, but you will feel better about who you are because you'll be able to go to bed that night saying that you did something rather than just posting a black square um, and, and, and calling that your, your, your activism for the movement. That's an example of what I was talking about, but it's mainly just you know, people who just like take to social media. But like, I think in my opinion, there's probably, if you're leading through actions and not posting on social media, I think that's even better, but it, ideally maybe both. Yeah. And for me as an artist, like, you know, the stuff that I'm producing, you know, like the whole, you know, have you ever been called the N-word? Well, that's actions to me. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, thank you. And then, but you know, that, but that, that's hours of my, that's hours and hours of my life. I'm not getting paid to do that. And you know, I mean, and, and honestly, I'm, because I'm re I'm reinvigorating my YouTube channel. I mean, it's got like 1500 views. It didn't go viral. I'm not making a penny on that, but if it can affect two, three, 400 people, 500, a thousand people, that, that, that's, that's why I sleep at night because I have a conviction to do so. You know, I, I get to walk into Gelson's and stand next to Caucasian folks and, and, and buy, you know, produce and, and go home. I get to do that today. My ancestors didn't get to do that. I get to use the same restroom as you guys. My ancestors didn't get to do that. So I feel that I have a, a specific responsibility and I hope that all people of color and all minorities in general just have a responsibility. And, 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 and white folks too, man. It's like, man, y'all listen to hip hop music. You know what I mean? Love it. <laughs> you know, it's like, we're all part of this thing. Um, and I, and I hope that we all continue to start raising awareness about it, you know? Yeah, no, you kind of touched on it already, but that was what I was going to ask you is what else, what else can people do besides going to the protest? Because I know I've gone to some of the protests, but there's definitely still a fear of COVID because it's such a lot of big groups of people. And even myself, I was worried because I knew I was going to see my parents and they're, in their late sixties and have health problems. So I didn't want to bring that to them, obviously. Of course. Um, you know, for me, I found ways of like trying to give them water into protests or doing things like that. Time to be more proactive, get the word out. Um, but what do you think are other things people can do that don't feel comfortable going to protests? Sure. Um, I think that, you know, you can, if you feel emboldened enough, you know, one of the things that can be done is sharing the right content on social media sharing links to how people can, um, you know, sign petitions, uh, sharing links on how people can support, you know, organizations like the NAACP, um, you know, find an organization that has bylaws that speaks to you. You know, not every, not every nonprofit is for everybody. Um, you know, share videos of the, the difference between white privilege and black privilege during states of arrest. 
How many times? That's, that's something that's emboldened that I, I, I challenge all white folks to do that. Share a video of what happens to, share one of these videos on, 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 on Instagram with one of these white folks tripping on acid, running around naked, fist, you know, fist I, I just saw that one, man. I just saw fight, that one. Yeah, fist fighting a cop. I saw Sean, Sean King posted that, and I was like, are you serious, man? How many videos have you seen where there's Caucasian folks that are, like, wrangling and fist fighting and rolling around with cops? They don't get shot. They don't get shot. And then this brother just two days ago, yesterday in Atlanta, man. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. He got into a tussle when they decided to arrest him. But for the first five minutes of that, he was cool as a whistle. He was like, yo, dog, I just – I would lay here to – Come on, bro. If that guy was white, he would have not been shot. Yeah, I mean, it does, it does happen to white people, but disproportionately to people of color, right? Is that accurate? Yeah, I would say it does happen. It does happen to white people, certainly. Um, but, but disproportionately to people of color. Staggeringly disproportionately. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. Does anybody know the stats on that? Because I'm not trying to... Sometimes I hear it from like conservatives that that's the. I, I will listen. I, I'm not going to sit here and argue that there hasn't been a white person that hasn't been shot in an arrest situation. Yeah, yeah I'm not trying to argue. I, I don't know that. I, I believe that to probably be true. We would be we'd be fooling ourselves if we said that it didn't happen. But it is. But there is a degree of white privilege, and again, I think, I think it's invisible. I think sometimes these cops don't even realize that they're being nicer to white people because they're just so used to being nice to white people. Right. Just used to it. I agree you know? with you. It's just, it's just the way that it is. Yeah. And, um, you know, hip hop music doesn't help it. <laughs> you know, um, privatized prison systems. I'll give you this. Did you know that there are many of the executives at the high music level are also investors in the privatized prison system? Dude, I just heard that from somebody like the other day. That's crazy. I did not know that. So I have a friend of mine who is a high-level pop star. He has, he has a star on the Walk of Fame. He was telling me that in the early 90s, when it was the boom of ghetto rap music, he said that he, he with his own ears, heard executives speak over dinner about how they're pushing ghetto rap music. One, because you don't need session musicians, so it's cheap to produce. All you need is a rapper. They get drunk and they get high, and you just give them drugs, and they just do their thing. But what does that do? It perpetuates violence, it perpetuates drugs, and it perpetuates crime in the inner cities. So what does that do? Let's push ghetto rap music to get black people to pull out guns, to do more drugs, to beat up on each other, and glorify criminal behavior because that puts them in prisons. And we own the privatized prisons. So we're making money on the front end and we're making money on the back end. That's crazy. And that, um, and that, that's mind-blowing to think about. Yeah. But like, it's not like Ice Cube and Dr. Dre, like, yeah. it's not like Ice Cube and Dr. Dre, like they were like just reporting on what was going on in their hometowns. Right. Like, but you still, but you still needed the Caucasian decision makers to release the albums. Right. right. Well, <laughs> exactly. that, all, all of them. Yeah. It's, you know, because, they, had, they had the money to make everything. For right, like, right. So, yeah. because listen, you know, remember the moment with Rick Ross, remember that moment a couple of years ago with Rick Ross, where he was talking about Molly's? He was talking like, yeah, put her on the molly, I'm a smasher or something like that. It was a whole big thing. Everybody blew up on Rick Ross. Everybody was like, yo, blacklist Rick Ross because he's talking about, you know, forcing himself sexually on a girl while she's, you know, while she's rolling on ecstasy and that whole thing. Well, suddenly that's behavior that can affect Caucasian people because now we're talking about a sexual invasion. But hold on, but glorifying guns and murder and, and, and beating people in the street and, 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 and prison culture, like, that's okay? 
Well, they must have hated glorifying murder. Glorifying murder on black people is okay. But talking about maybe doing something illegal, it is illegal and horrible to do, forcing yourself sexually on somebody while they're induced on drugs, horrible. But they came down on him for that. They, didn't come, they don't come down on him for talking about killing people and selling cocaine, which I think is a big double standard. So when I think about stuff like that and you think about that, the systems that are behind the systems, you do have to ask yourself, you know, what is really happening here and what are we not seeing? True. Those higher ups must have hated when uh, Kanye West and Drake changed the game and started talking about their emotions, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I agree, man. I, I, I agree. And Drake's good at that, man. He's great. Yeah. I love him. Uh, I love him. Well, we, I know we, uh, we could talk about this, honestly, all day. Um, but uh, I want to kind of touch a little bit on some of the stuff you've, you've been doing, honestly, just throughout your career. Because uh, so I, for our audience, we'll talk a lot. about this in our intro. We, on the, for the audience, we'll tell them how we met on the intro. But we worked together on Insatiable, that's how I met you. And uh, we actually worked on Queen of the South with each other. Not with each other as well, but you worked on that show at a different time than I did. So we had like similar credits, which is, which is funny and weird. Small Hollywood, man. Um, but uh, you've done a lot of great TV shows. You actually have your own production company. So just kind of talk a little bit about the production company you have, the stuff you produced, and how does like your childhood influence a lot of your work? Mm. Um, well, thanks, man. And, and yeah, and I, I, we, we definitely worked on Insatiable. We had a good time on Insatiable. Uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, man, look, I, I came to... I came to LA, you know, with a theater degree from Arizona State University and my- ASU, baby. ASU, are you a Sun Devil? That's right. Nice. Um, I, I went to theater school there. I was, I had the, the, the fortune to train under Marshall Mason, who is, has four Tony Awards uh, for his work on Broadway, Best Director. Uh, so it was a nice incubator. I was able to sort of hone my skills, learn the mechanics of theater and also the, 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 the recent and historical and ancient theatrical canon from a literary perspective. I hold my skills as a filmmaker there. I always came into this thing saying, I'm gonna attack the island and I'm burning the boat. I talk to a lot of young actors and I say, look, the second that you say you're gonna try this Hollywood thing, move back to Oklahoma where the rent's cheap and you can get a house and get a dog and marry someone and have a yard. Because if you wanna brave Los Angeles or brave New York City, you better say, I'm gonna be an actor. That's it. There's no, there's no if, ands, or buts about it. This is what I'm gonna do and that's all that I'm gonna do. And I've always had that mindset. Um, I remember early on, I met uh, Burt Young on the set of Transamerica. I was working in production on that. And I was, and he's smoking a cigarette. I was smoking a cigarette with him. And, he, and I said, hey, I just finished theater school. You know, just give me something. Give me, give me something I can hold on to. I can take with me. And he said, kid, just keep showing up. And, well, there's a lot of truth in that, though. Yeah, right. Exactly. There is. But, you know, and, at, and at the time, I wanted more. I wanted to, I don't know what I was looking for, but I wanted more. But it made perfect sense to me. It makes perfect sense to me now. Um, and so as a result of that, I started producing things in 2006. I produced my first short film. That was actually a spoken word short film that played 16 festivals and won a bunch of festivals. And I did it for like 500 bucks. I didn't even know what a production designer was. I had no idea, but I just said, okay, we're going to production designers house. Let's see what they do. You know? And, um, and then uh, as a result of that, I was like, wow, producing is really where I like to be because not everybody could take an idea from idea to pencil scratch to screen. You know, it's not for everybody. It's a very, it's a difficult terrain. Uh, 
Um, but now flash forward now, I'm, I'm in post on my fifth feature called Catalyst. Uh, we're just nearing picture lock right now. I'm writer, one of the story writers, producer, and also one of the leads uh, with Melanie Liburd from uh, This Is Us. Um, Michael Rourke, Noel Guglielmi, Patrick Kilpatrick. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty powerful cast. Uh, Jermaine Love, who's in all three Rogue Warfers. Um, so it's a solid picture. My last movie that I produced and wrote, executive produced and played the lead in, uh, was licensed by Hulu, uh, picked up by Gravitas. So um, I've produced more short films than I can count. I, I don't know how to make bad movies anymore. Um, you know, they're just out of my system. You know, Robert Rodriguez said it best. He says, every, every filmmaker has 10 bad movies in their system. So hurry up, start making bad movies so you can get to your fucking career. You know, and, um, and I'm definitely past those 10. So I, I, as a result of that, I use my expertise as an actor, but also as a content creator to, to create content that uh, gives me opportunities in front of a camera. Uh, and I always tell people to, you know, if you want to, if you want to figure out how to get your foot in the door, stop looking for their fucking door, build a frame and walk through it. And your first door is going to fall apart. You don't know how to bevel edges. Your nails are going to bend and you're going to nick your fucking thumb and maybe peel a thumbnail off and it's going to suck dick. But eventually you'll become a craftsman and people will be drawn to your craft. Hence this conversation right now. Um, so I always invite people to fail and fail and fail again and, and fall and fall forward um, until you get to where you want to go. And um, as far as being an actor is concerned, um, I love to tell stories. I love to be a part of the collaborative process of bringing black and white letters to a moving, palpable, gripping place of, of entertainment, whether that's drama or whether that's comedy or whatever it is. Um, and if you look at some of our great actors of our time, our great actors often become producers. You know, if you look at Brad Pitt with Plan B and you, you know, you look at so many great actors, Matthew McConaughey, who are doing great stuff, Angelina Jolie. I mean, even I was just in Birds of Prey and that was produced by Margot Robbie. You know, she got that movie off the ground. They didn't bring that to her. They cast her in, in Suicide Squad. But off the bankable, off the bankness of, of her work in Suicide Squad, she was able to say, look, I want to do this. And then she, you know, she brought in the director. She did all the work. Did you so, see her on set? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was so, working on Birds of Prey. Um, Cause that was a good movie. That was like a yeah. It's 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 a good movie. It's a fun movie. It's a fun movie. It was uh, to be honest with you, it, it exceeded my expectations. Um, um, you know, man, what I discovered about the one takeaway that I learned in that movie um, is that when you take away, okay, the if you take away the, 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 the techno cranes and you know, you, you take away the, the 50 foot cranes that are lighting a warehouse from the exterior in downtown LA, you take all that bullshit. It boils down to actors in a scene. That's it. And that there was nobody in that scene that was doing anything that I can't do. Except for Ewan McGregor, because he's got a great voice. I can't for <laughs> the life of me. I, I, I remember I caught you in that movie. I didn't even know you were in it until I saw it. And I'm like, fuck, David's in this. And then I was like, oh, there he is with Ewan McGregor. Yeah, yeah. That dude and, was and, going balls to the wall in that movie, man. Yeah, he was, man. And, and, Ewan, is a, and, and, and Ewan was a really charming guy. I'm very grateful for, for him being so warm and so tender. But that was really the takeaway, that, there, that, that when you get to a certain point, a certain degree, so, you know, you guys can echo this as actors. It's like when you get to the guest star level, the guest star, recurring guest star, series regular level, we're all fucking good actors, right? What we're looking for, what casting is looking for is, 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 is 
that certain interpretation of that particular text that only David Bianchi can create as a result of my physical, emotional, and spiritual experiences. How do I perceive the world? I, I, I create a moving, palpable performance based on what has been fed to me and the digital and the, and the emotional downloads that I've received through my life. Right? That's how I perceive life. So that's how I perceive characters. Johnny, you would be the same way. You know, you put two actors in separate rooms with the same text, they come out, they deliver the same fucking bit, but it's completely different every, every, every single time. Never be identical. So at that level, we're all good actors. And, um, and that was the big takeaway from that because it, it, put, it reinvigorated me to say, you know what, no, this, I do belong here. I'm not here by accident. I belong here. I earned this. I went in the hard way. I didn't get a call from Kathy Ann saying, hey, Dave, come in my movie. No. I went to the fucking casting room, man. And I, I auditioned. I thought I, I thought I dropped the ball. I didn't feel too great about it. And I got a phone call. I went in the hard way. I didn't know anybody. There was no nepotism there, you know. So um, ownership is also important about, I think, becoming and being a successful actor or a successful person is ownership of your accomplishments, you know. Because those are the things that are going to get you out of bed on Monday, especially during this period of COVID where things feel so uncertain. You know, and talk about Hollywood and COVID. I mean, that's all insurance based, right? Because as a producer, I know that I don't care where it is that I want to shoot. Nobody's going to give me a location unless I have production insurance, period. Hands down, bar none. And insurers aren't going to take on a pre-existing condition, i.e. COVID, right? So I think for actors like us, and I'll say us as in the rising level, the rising tide of actors, it's going to be great for us. Because the elite actors are going to bail out off the consultation of their teams because they want to wait to see that everything is, they want to wait for productions to fuck up before they come in. Nobody wants, like if you're a server, you never want to really open a restaurant. You just want to kind of jump in and make money. You don't want to open a restaurant and like figure out the kinks because you're not making money and it's stressful, right? And so the elite actors are going to behave the same way. They're going to fly out. So what it's going to do is it's going to create a rising tide for the rising tide of the actors to step in and get great jobs that would otherwise be given to elite actors, right? Or actors with bigger and larger credits. Because we would be the group of actors that are like, uh, yeah, I'll take a recurring guest. Whereas other guys are gonna be like, mm, it's just a recurring guest. Let me just wait till this COVID thing you know, simmers down. Because what's gonna happen is as a result of no insurance, production companies are gonna have to make everybody sign waivers, right? which means on set, it's gonna be meticulous. There'll be craft services out the door. Everything is gonna be wrapped, single, single right. plastic. Yeah. It's gonna be horrible for the environment. Yeah, it's gonna be really bad. Everything uh, wrapped in plastic, yeah. Everything wrapped in plastic. And if, you, and if you thought it was obnoxious being an actor in your trailer and being sequestered, you know, cause I used to, I used to, I hated it. I, I was working on Insatiable and I got picked up in the van and they needed me on set, blah, blah, blah. Woo, and I had to jump in, in the pass van with the Griffin Electric team. The fucking driver insisted that I sit in the front seat. No, he's telling. I said, bro, like, why you got to oh. put me on blast in front of 15 <laughs> capable men? They me look like a goddamn Cinderella. Like, he's got to sit in front of his talent. And these guys are running late to get their breakfast so they can fucking set up the grip and electric for the yeah. day. Yeah. But production insisted that I had to be dropped off first. And let me, let me guess, was the guy like, hey, is the air okay? Are you, are you too cold, yeah, too dude, hot? Dude, do you need a jacket? You want a jacket? Exactly. Dude, I was, I was like, guys, I, told, I was like, please take these guys, take Crippin Electric where they got to go. Yeah. And, and yeah. he's going to do it because the unit production manager will come down on him. Right. So if you think that, if I think that was bad, just wait when we get back post-COVID. It's, 
You're not, gonna let you, you're not gonna be able to talk to anybody. Hey, just stay oh, over there. Your trailer is gonna be 200 extra yards away from base camp. Yeah. You're gonna have a PA that's gonna come to your fucking door with a mask on and gloves. And yep. you're, it's gonna be, you're literally gonna be, we're gonna be treated like porcelain cups. It's gonna feel very bizarre. Yeah, it seems very it's, it's so funny. Well, so I know, obviously you do so many things, man. Spoken word, uh, motivational speaker, actor, producer, you're multi-hyphenate. What do you my, first, my, my first book is coming out this year too. That Dude, was, author? Whoa. Yeah. Philanthropist? What's it about? I mean, what's the title? What's the title? Uh, the title, the, the work, the title is called Pursue, Reach, Attain, Retain, Repeat. Where, where, where is it going to come out? Or so it's, uh, I finished, it? yeah, so I, I finished the book and uh, the book proposal is now being pitched to publishers. I have a literary agent that's pitching it to publishers right now. Cool. Was it hard to write a book? Is that, that hard? Is it hard to write a book? If you're a writer, no. What, for me as a writer, what I've found harder to do is the discipline to sit down and do it as opposed to the ideas. Because the ideas are always in my head. You know, I'll never, as an artist, I'll never be a substitute for substance. I will always have ideas. Sure. Um, but for me, it was hard to say, okay, I'm going to turn this guy off and poof, and just go into a tunnel and set deadlines for yourself. Because that's what I found most challenging. It's just, it's just the, the is, is doing to do. Because when you're an entrepreneur, like we all are as actors, you're an entrepreneur onto yourself. No one's going to get you out of bed at 9 a.m. except for you. No one's going to get you to call that photographer or make you write that script or write that treatment or call that so-and-so or do that so-and-so thing. It's got to be done on your own time and your own vigor. So that was, I think, is the hardest part, you know, because the ideas are always flowing through. It took me about a year and a half to sort so of- no, no ghostwriters for you. No, fuck no. No, no, I, I don't. I know ghostwriters because it's the book Pursue, Reach, Attain, Retain, Repeat is a, is a spin cycle to success that is somewhat centrifuged with my personal experience. So it has some autobiographical components, um, but it is an interdisciplinary approach to how one can be successful in whatever discipline that you're involved in. Um, so yeah, and I wanted to, and I decided to use that as a tentpole to boost my credibility as a leadership speaker, because I do believe, and I know that Hollywood is like fashion dog, like what works in the fall doesn't work in the spring. And you know, and if as actors, we're lucky if we get a good run, if you get a good five year run on a show, 10 year run on a show, that's the dream. Uh, Dog, that's, that's the golden truth. <laughs> you chalk it up. But the question you have to ask yourself is, as an entrepreneur, how are you diversifying your resources? How are you diversifying your star power? And how are you bringing in multiple streams of equity? Because if you're relying on one stream of equity, you're a fucking idiot. You know? and, and especially in a time like this, how are you being embryonic and recreating yourself? Um, and so those are a lot of things that I talk about in the book, about how to identify what it is you want to pursue how to reach it, because that's a different type of psychology. Once you reach it and you attain it, okay, once you attain it, how do you retain it? Because just because I have something in my hand doesn't mean I'm going to hold on, right? right. And especially, then, especially with acting, you can always be gone the next day. Yep, so. attain, right. And then, so, so there's a different sort of psychology that comes with each step of the book. And it's, it's a very involved, uh, it's a very involved book. It's, you know, it's about 220 pages, you know, six by nine. And, you know, it's a real deal. I, gotta, I definitely got to check that out when, when it, it comes out. Man. Congratulations, by the way. Uh, so, so what do you consider yourself first and foremost? I'm an artist. Okay. I'm, I'm, an, I'm an artist no matter what. Okay. If you come like I, if you go on my website, like I've done, I do big abstract contemporary art. I mean, I've showed in galleries in, in Scottsdale and Mesa and Tempe and uh, at the, in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills. And um, at, 
I want to be able to leave this world, this illusion <laughs> that we're living in. I want to be able to leave this world with a body of work that people can discuss, that people can endorse and be inspired by. You know, I think that um, the universe gives us a certain set of interdisciplinary artists that are interested in and, and, and are quite good at multiple capacities of art. And I happen to be one of those people. Um, whether it's a painting, whether it's a photograph, whether it's a poem, whether it's a film, my work doesn't suck. <laughs> whether it's a performance, it doesn't suck. Um, I'm good at a lot of things, but I'm a good at being an artist, most importantly. Um, and, uh, and I'm evolving, you know? So I'm excited about what this illusion is going to give to me and what my life is going to become. Uh, a wise person once told me, he says, you know, David, you can only take with you what you've become. Everything else you have to leave here, right? So when I leave this world, I have to say to myself, what have I become? And as a result of what I became is synonymous with what I left. So if I'm leaving a positive imprint of art and inspiration and motivation, odds are I can leave this world having become something worthwhile. I love it. So. Well said. Well said. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I'm just going to just a kind of a quick question. You've obviously worked on a lot of cool projects. Uh, what's your favorite so far? You have a favorite or is it something you produce? Um, I, you know, I think, um, I, <laughs> how can you even say the favorite, you know? So. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I think that it's, it's a good question. Or which one had most, the most profound effect on you? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that, um, my last feature dysfunction that I produced really took a lot out of me. Um, I was, that sounds I, dysfunctional. Uh, it's, it's, all, all, it's called all out, all out dysfunction. It's a dark comedy. It's, it's six dysfunctional Hollywood types that all live in a mansion. Um, oh, I, I think I saw like the trailer on your Instagram. There was like a slot. Or... Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, that looked good. That kind of looked like for just the trailer. I don't know. It looked kind of like stylized. It looked kind of cool. Yeah, it's six dysfunctional Hollywood types all live in a mansion selling ads. You know, Note, then, notice the character Aaron picked out the slut. The she slut. was featured in the trailer. From yeah, she's actually called the sex the sex pop. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, uh, I cleaned it but, up. Uh, but you know that that for me was was really when the rubber hit the road as a producer. You know, because I delivered that movie for less than six figures, and that's delivered to the distributor. Um, and I wrote it, I produced it, I executive produced it, and I played one of the leads. You know, when I go on a movie or I go on a set and I'm, and I'm an actor, I kind of get bored sometimes, you know, unless I'm shooting like eight pages a day where I can't afford to be. For the most part, I, my mind is always firing in different directions. And so that was really like what was the salt of the earth for me as a producer, because it was like day four, and I shot 96 pages in 11 days, and it was day four, and on day four, I was raising money for day six. Damn, so, dude. Over so the while, phone? I'm, while I'm producing and I'm acting, I'm on the phone talking to investors like, come on, guys, I need this. I need this money. I just need this because otherwise I can't finish this movie. You got to got it. You know what I mean? 90 so pages in 11 days is hard enough. Nine, yeah. Well, we had two 12 page days back to back, single camera. Um, so that was School of Hard Knocks as a producer and as an actor. I learned a lot. Um, you know, I look at shows like Queen of the South and having done eight episodes of that, that was the first time for me as an actor that I actually like was on location for a stint where I lived in another city physically for six months almost. And I was living out of a hotel and I was like, oh, this is nice. But it also gave me a taste of 
what it means to be a functional working actor in this game. Whereas actors, we follow the circus. Wherever the circus tells us to go, we just get up and go. You know, and whatever you got going on is just going to have to accept that. And whatever you have going on is going to have to accept that. And I learned that in my intimacy, that became very challenging. You know, me and my girlfriend, we didn't step up. We didn't, we weren't signed up for a long distance relationship. Suddenly we were tossed into one, you know. And so I learned a lot there. You guys are still um, together? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, you know, she's an incredible woman and she's never seen me have a drink of alcohol. I've never seen her have a drink of alcohol. I saw that you're, um, I saw that on your Instagram. You're so many years sober. Is that? Yeah, I'm now actually, let's see. In fact, I think I just hit a little, a little Nick today. Today is, uh, oh yeah, that says, uh, I can't see that, but that says. Oh yeah. Uh, mm. 3.8 3 oh, years. 3.8 years. Yeah. Or 1,128 days. Dude, congratulations. I'm 37 months sober. So that's just over three years. Um, thanks, man. And, um, you know, everything that I am today is a result of the work that I've done in 12 steps and the result of the work that I do in recovery. I've discovered, uh, I really feel that I've discovered my God intended self. I've discovered, and I am discovering my genuine and true purpose. You know, um, it's not for everyone. You know, I know a lot of people that need to get sober, <laughs> you know, sobriety isn't for people that do it. it, 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 it sobriety isn't for people that need it or for people that want it. It's for people that fucking do it. You know, because we all know car crashes. We all know car wrecks out there. They're just like, man, that motherfucker takes a drink, man. And I don't know what happens to him. <laughs> <laughs> and I was one of those guys, man, you know? I was going to say, I used, I used to be one of those people sometimes. So I, I'm right? not like that anymore, but. Oh, bro, you fucking. <laughs> okay. Bro, bro where the fuck going to go, bro? I got an idea. Bro, I got a guy in China. He's got a fucking yeah, exactly. It's fucking great, <laughs> you know? Um, it's, fu it's funny how all these great ideas come when you're in that moment. Right, right. Like in the moment, they sound like the most the greatest idea in the world. Oh, absolutely. When I listen, I always say when I when I'm drunk, when I'm drunk, I'm either gonna fucking hug you or I'm gonna fight you. Right. When I'm, <laughs> when I'm on ecstasy, I'm gonna squeeze you and kiss you and probably have sex with your girlfriend. And when I'm on coke, I want to start a business. You know. What I'm <laughs> and 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 sometimes it's all mixed in between. And just dude, I'm I'm, I'm talking. I'm I'm like seventy one hours awake straight on ecstasy and cocaine and alcohol and I go ham bro like so they, all of that stuff was your vice back in the day well you know it the, the 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 funny now this this may sound paradoxical but that was the solution to my problem so if you look at people that are addicts we drink and consume to oblivion because we don't want to feel see because once the alcohol is removed David is still left with David. The only difference is David doesn't have any way to escape David anymore. David has to deal with everything that is him. His positives, his shortcomings, his character defects, everything that made him drink. Everything I was running away from suddenly comes at you like a ton of bricks. And you have to learn how to navigate this complicated world without the medicine. And that's the hard part. You know, um, allowing yourself to become very, very small like a mustard seed, so you can reinvigorate and grow again. And um, it's, a, it's a very bold self-discovery and very confrontational. Uh, it, it, take, it does take a lot of bravery. I sponsor guys. Um, I'm, I'm very actively involved in, in the program, and it's something that, you know, to me, I, everything that I have today is a result of that. Hey, a, go ahead. Well, I was just going to backtrack a little, because I liked, I liked what he was saying, but I just had one question. Like, what's yeah. your key for distribution? on some of these feature films. 
like because uh-huh. we make we make short films it, so obviously nobody's looking for distribution of that but as we progress that's not, the, not necessarily true look at shorts hd that's at, i mean i mean except those very niche things yeah. but or, but for features or for whatever um distribution is has gotten better for the independent filmmaker than it ever has the the digital stream has made it possible for anyone to basically get their movie released. Um, but on the other side of that, it's also made it a bit of a minefield. So take like digital headshots, for example, you now get access to every casting director, but now every casting director gets 2,500 submissions for every co-star. <laughs> so now it's like, well, you're in the room, but you're now in the room with thousands of others. And so distribution now operates the same way that any Tom, Dick and Jane with a camera can get, you know, Amazon streaming distribution and just like anybody can now publish their own book and, you know, but how do you get the right distribution? Well, the right distribution comes with producing the right movie. You know, you have to, you really have to be conscious that you are hitting the C-level marks of film production and C-level marks is, you know, quality picture, quality sound, quality script, quality performances, quality image. You got to hit C-level. If you want good distribution, if you want a company like Gravitas to look at you, you have to hit a certain altitude. And then above and beyond that, what are you doing to make your independent film interesting? Um, If you are in the $100,000 or 20, I would even say quarter million in under space, it's going to be very challenging for you to get distribution on the front end because distribution on the front end is often contingent on on star power. Right. Um, You know, there is still a part of the model that is done. You know, you book talent and then off the bank of talent, then you can pre-sell, then you can start to pre-sell your film and you can sell it on 86, 86 cents on the dollar and start to get a little bit of money. But if you're not that person, if you guys are a bunch of actors just trying to put it together, then my advice is just to make your movie any way you fucking possibly can. You know, um, Catalyst, the one that I'm working on now, and I'll send you guys a trailer. It's 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 pretty fucking epic. And I yeah, say I'd love to see it. I say yeah. that with all honesty. It's the best thing. It made my last movie look like Child's Play. Um, we started shooting this thing in July 2017. Literally, July 2017, and we've been shooting it piecemeal ever ever since. And so, make your movie any way that you can. Um, and as far as distribution is concerned, there is quality distribution out there. So I'll give you my story on, on, on how I got uh, Gravitas on Dysfunction. So I was going into that having produced a couple other features, but small features, nothing real of real merit. Like I did something small with Danny Trejo, and, but nothing that was like, oh, David Bianchi's on the phone. We got to take his call. No, fuck that. Nobody cared. So I, I created a database of, of movies that looked and behaved like mine. Slackers, you know, um, you know, these sorts of like small sort of uniquitous, you know, offbeat, dark comedy sort of movies, right? And I looked at their distributors and I built a spreadsheet and I got all the contact lists and I said, okay, what's, what, what is distribution about? Distribution is about selling the sizzle and not the steak, right? Because what makes you bite the steak? The smell of it. That's a sizzle, right? So I said, okay, I'm going to cut a sexy fucking trailer and I'm going to go through all these distributors and they'll at least give me 90 seconds because I got the gift of gab. I will talk you into 90 seconds of your life. All right, guaranteed I'll do that. I'll tell you everything you need to hear on the phone. Let me just get your email address so I can just send these nine nice, let me just do it to you, right? So that's what I did. And I basically cold called 50 distributors and Gravitas was one of them. And I cut together the trailer that you see online, I, I cut together myself. And so I having cut together a sexy enough trailer, they were like, oh, this is really interesting and it looks good. You've hit the altitude. Let's see what else this is all about. And as a result of that, Gravitas made me an offer before I even played a festival. Mm. 
So now I have an open door to Gravitas. I, so, so for now, this movie Catalyst, Gravitas, with all due respect, Gravitas, you guys are my last house on the left at this point. Because <laughs> I know I can get it <laughs> you guys. You know what I mean? I know they'll take my movie. Um, because, it, it, again, it makes my last movie that Gravitas took literally look like child's play. Mm. Um, so now it's like, okay, so now that we have this sort of model, I think it really ultimately is, if you don't have distribution on the front end, is making sure that you always step with your best foot forward. Like be very measured on what you release, who you release it to, and how you release it. So I'm in a position now where I've got a really sexy film that's basically picture locked, but I still need some money to get through post. Now I have two choices. I can, I can keep raising independent equity and finish it that way, or I can go to an LGF or I can go to, you know, I can go to a Netflix or an Amazon and say, hey, look, here's my movie, boom. I know you guys will love it. I just need the money to finish it. So in both those situations, the movie will get done. But in situation A, it's harder because you got to raise the money, but you still keep your dick. In situation B, it's easier to finish the movie, but you lose your dick. Because it's, they're going to... If they're going to step in and say, yeah, I'll give you the money to finish it, but we're going to own it and this is what we're going to, and we're going to give you maybe a couple hundred grand for it. As opposed to me walking in the door with a completed fucking picture where I'm like, I want seven figures for this thing or I'm moving on. If it's a uh, picture locked though, or pretty much picture locked, is there a still, isn't that most of the money getting it to being picture locked or is there still a lot to... Well, yeah. Well, it, it depends. It depends what you're creating. You know, you have to keep in mind when, when you're creating a, a film that is Netflix competitive. Now I want to use that and I want you to be paying attention to what I mean by this. Netflix is no longer taking independent fare from Bill, Bob and Ted because they have set the bar on what production value, again, all the languages of cinema need to be. So unless you're playing Toronto, Sundance, Telluride, Tribeca, South by Southwest, you're not even at Netflix altitude, bro. And if you're gonna be delivering a picture that's gonna be at that altitude, you need proper sound design, you need proper foley, you need proper score, you need proper mix, you need proper color, you need proper, you need proper visual effects, you need proper conform, you need, you know, this shit costs money because they're very technical fields. You know, any Tom, Dick, and Harry can fucking carry an Apple box, but get a guy to give you a good sound design, that motherfucker ain't picking up the phone for less than 500 a day. Sure, sure. Interesting. Yeah. I get it, yeah. So, you know, post-production, even on, even on a proper small film, you're looking at six figures. You know, um, maybe you could pull it off for 50 or 60. If, if, you know, so spend 100 grand and get it done quickly or spend 50 and get it done in six months. Right. <laughs> it really all depends on what, what you're looking for, what you're asking yeah. for. Yeah. And God forbid you have visual effects. If you have visual effects, well. Yeah, of course. That would be, that's well, a whole other thing. Right. And, and, and a visual effect isn't always just an explosion. A visual effect is, damn, I got a Pepsi logo in the frame. We got to paint that out. That's a visual right. effect. That's keyframe. That's rotoscoping. That costs money, you know, because if you got a Pepsi logo, when you get to delivery, you know, you're going to have your errors and omissions and they're going to say, well, you got a Pepsi logo in the frame. We're not going to take your movie until you get permission for Pepsi. You cut the fucking frame out. Hmm. Damn. You know, and then God forbid you're at that point because then you've already picture locked your movie. You sound, you sound locked your movie and you got a Pepsi logo in there for what, six seconds. Now you got to go back in, cut that out, re reorganize and re basically reanimatize the scene and then you got to remix and recall well i don't know when the last time you guys saw the movie goodfellas was but there's a scene where they're taking a flight and it's american airlines that 
like they didn't get permission. So there's a black box over that, you know, 10 seconds of. I don't think I've seen that. No, footage. Yeah, that's so it's, that's funny. And you research it, and it's just because they never cleared it, and there's nothing they could do, and they needed the shot. That's, I'm telling you guys, like, and that's a that's a great story because when I delivered, and I learned a lot when you talk about dysfunction, like I really learned the errors and omissions process because you have to take your movie and you're going to send it to a clearance company in Toronto or Vancouver because that's where the best rates are, and these people's job is literally to go through your movie frame by fucking frame and redline your movie till the cows come home. And then you're literally going to have three tiers. These are guaranteed removals, maybe removals, and kind of get away with. And you got to go through your movie before you get to sound and before you get to locking and conforming. And you got to make sure that your movie is clear and clear. Because if not, you know, a company like Gravitas is going to say, okay, look, if I take your movie with these logos in it, I'm going to make you indemnify us. So if all of a sudden Coca-Cola comes back and wants a lawsuit, they're going to sue your ass <laughs> and they're going to take your house at home. So all this stuff is stuff that we don't think about when we're just excited about making a movie. You know? <laughs> Very good. Just set up the camera, just shoot it. We got it. Yeah, just shoot it. Yeah, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. No, no yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't That's work. great, man. Yeah. All right. So let's, well, uh, we, we've been going over an hour, guys. Yeah. Hour and a half almost. Should we I get know. the plugs? Yeah, so I know you're dropping the the, uh, the new thing tomorrow, right? I can't breathe. Um, yeah, I think this, yeah. This, I think this episode is going to be coming out tomorrow. Is that right, Austin? That's right, uh, from Aaron. Okay, Aaron. So this episode is actually coming out tomorrow. So same thing when yours, yours is dropping. So I'll plug your thing. Oh, dope. 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 Yeah. I mean, please, please just, you know, definitely the YouTube channel, because right now that is something that I do have control of and it's something I'm working hard at. Mm -hmm. um, you know, guys get out there and subscribe. The content is positive. Um, so youtube.com backslash David Bianchi. Um, if you want to join my book list, uh, go to BianchiExperience.com. Um, there you can see that that portal is that landing page is all about the book um, and send me an email and I'll send you a, a, an extraction of the book so you can get a sense of the literary. And um, I mean, Queen of the South uh, season four just dropped on Netflix uh, June 6th. So that's so you know what? Stay calm. Watch <laughs> yes. Um, and where can they find you on social media? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instagram, uh, David Bianchi underscore official. Uh, Twitter at David Bianchi, um, but definitely the best place to go is uh, David Bianchi underscore official. I am, a, um, you know, reach out to me, send me a note. Um, I, I love connecting. I love. Really? You'd respond to a DM? Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, I slid into the DMs, bro. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. here we are. Yeah. I, I, I do, man. I, I, I always pay attention to the DMs because, I mean, the truth is you never know, man. You never know who's reaching out to you. And in this game, as long as I can be accessible, I will be accessible. When it gets to the point, I've had times where I've had to have an assistant sort of track my DMs, um, which is fine. But even then, my rule of thumb was like, read every DM. Because I, I don't know what's being sent my way or what people are trying to petition me for. You know, you, know, you never know what kind of goodness is out there. You know? yeah. And real quick, uh, just so the audience knows, tell us real quick about this spoken word project. I can't breathe. What is that about? Yes, 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 yes. Um, probably about I, george it, floyd yes yes i i'll give you a i'll actually give you a bit of it um all right exclusive can you do it for us yeah yeah i'll, I'll do a little i'll do it if you guys don't mind yeah oh, we so love it. um yeah it's 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 pretty heavy 
Give me a second here. Sorry, I'm just looking for the right file here. Uh, take your time. Okay. Yeah, man. Um, actually, hmm. let's do this. Johnny, what's your dog doing? Uh, he's chilling, man. Always sleeping. Yeah. Now nah, he was a uh, Seth came by earlier because we had this rehearsal we had to do. So he was kind of teaching him tricks and stuff. Like what? Uh, Roll over? He won't because I can't get him to sit for the life of me, man. We've been trying and he just doesn't. He's a puppy. Into it. All the video tricks on YouTube and tutorials, from, like <laughs> these, these dog gurus and dog whispers, they still have, haven't worked. So it's, it'll happen eventually. I once clicked on a YouTube video where it was like, find out why dogs get so excited when they, um, when you come home and then like, it like wasted five minutes of my time. And then it just said, Oh, dogs get excited because they like seeing you. Okay. <laughs> wow. They really uh, got you. They got me to click on it. Whenever you're ready, man. I got this a little, it's a little bit. Um, I initially called it how much is enough. And then I called it collapsed neck and then I changed it to, I can't breathe. Um, is directed by Ryan Lamas, who's the same guy that directed uh, All Out Dysfunction that I spoke about. And, um, you know, we did it COVID. We, I went out to his place and we shot in his garage and we never really got more than, we didn't even hug each other. Like, cause he's got a child and his wife was concerned. So, you know, we went in there, it was just me and him, you know, and we shot it in his garage and he did the post and I did the sound design and I, I did the mix. Um, we worked remotely and we knocked it out. It's pretty powerful, but I'll give you a little piece of it. Cool. Um, is it really not enough when the rubber bullets fly? When the world is enraged from watching another black man die, gasping for breath and he says I can't breathe, his esophageal tube crushed under a man's knee? Is it not enough to wake in the wake of hate perpetuated by a system dating back to Negro slaves? Beat that black man, make him pick cotton, shoot that black man, it look like he up to something. Is American fury not enough for you? Crowds plowed through by the vans, driven by the men in blue. Who do you call when the cops are the killers, when the body camera footage shows you murdering my brothers and sisters? Is the execution of a man not enough for you? Judge, jury, and executioner by the man in blue. You look down at us for behaving like an angry mob, but if all men are created equal, what gives you the right to play God? Where is the leadership? Where is the fight? Four days to be arrested for murdering a man in plain sight in the ninth day riot to arrest the other three, right? Did it maybe occur to you that our hearts are broken, that we're tired of being hurt in our culture not moving forward? Be it Selma, Malcolm X, or the death of Dr. King, Freedom Riders, Bloody Sunday, I could hear the choir sing, Rosa Parks, LA Riots, the beating of Rodney King, Eric Gardner, Philando, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, can you feel the state? You'll arrest hundreds of young voices in the generation to come when all you had to do was show us justice for one. Now you've created a resentment that will stretch a generation that will instill fear in the police administration in the eyes of the young people who know what is right. Trusting in the biblical law of thou shalt not kill, right? There's a little sample of it. Damn, dude. That was awesome, man. That was powerful. Love it, man. I look, I, I look forward to seeing the whole thing. I will definitely be watching it a couple times. 
yeah, the only then it, it will move you, man. The way that we assembled it, I think, is very unique. Um, and my delivery on it is is introverted. It's not. It's just more from a place of real dissatisfaction, you know, because it's hard to hear someone when they're angry, but it's easy to hear someone's pain. And that's what I loved about your last piece is like, they're just kind of emphasizing the fact that like, you're tired, we're tired. Yeah. Like that feeling of being so fed up that you're just, I'm too exhausted to be angry. You know what I mean? I, I think, I think that just, there's something about that just so resonates. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's it 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 nice. Everybody understands powerlessness. At some point in your life, you've been powerless to some people, place, or thing. And, um, you know, even that honesty that, that, that is resonating with you gentlemen, believe it or not, that was all taught to me by my sobriety. That was taught to me by learning how to be open with another man about the wreckage of my past, about learning to come to terms with the things that led me to my addictions. You know, um, there's a great, I'll leave you guys with this thought. There's a great, um, talk that I saw online and a guy was describing the notion of, uh, of resentment, basically, uh, you know, holding a grudge. And he said, you know, envision this glass of water. How much does this glass of water weigh? Probably not more than maybe half a pound. And if you carry it for 10 seconds and have a sip, it, put it down, it's no worries. But if you carry this glass of water for an hour, it starts to become a burden. And if you carry it for 10 hours, it becomes incredibly heavy. Just let go of the glass and start to live your life. Um, and as a result of being able to slowly let go of the glass, um, I've been able to allow myself to be vulnerable to an audience, to, to, to try to connect with people. And, and I think that in a way that's, that's helpful and, and healthy. Yeah, so. Appreciate the openness, Matt. Uh, thank you for coming on, man. I got nothing but love and respect for you. Thanks, so thank, thank you for the time, man. And uh, definitely look forward to, uh, to seeing this piece tomorrow. Thanks, Austin, Johnny, Aaron. Appreciate you guys. Appreciate you, David, thank you. man. Thank you for your time. Uh, and I don't know if I said anything that needs to be edited out. But, you know, no just... way, man. Well, <laughs> let us know within the hour. <laughs> no yeah. I'm, I'm good man i'm good this yeah you're dropping you're dropping knowledge bombs and heart bombs and stuff it was awesome you yeah. can't make, and you can't make everybody happy yeah no i thought you did. everything was good man it was it was great so i think we're good thank you man thank, really, thank you man really grateful guys